This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Alain Bouchard of Cardiology Specialist of Birmingham, Alabama at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. This is MyHeart.net, and um, we are talking today about the primary prevention. Uh, in 2021, we um, published a podcast with Dr. Martha Gulati on primary prevention, and um, we thought that this time we would really try to um, create a series about the primary prevention using excerpt that we recorded in 2021. Dr. Martha Gulati is now Director of Preventive Cardiology at Cedars-Sinai. She's also Associate Director of the Barbara Streisand Women's Heart Center. Uh, and uh, she's a staff physician there at Cedars-Sinai at the Smith Heart Institute. We'll try to divide our series into uh, five different uh, programs. And the first one will be how to prevent heart disease. How do we identify and mitigate the risk factors for a healthier future? Uh, the second excerpt will be about decoding aspirin for the use of heart disease prevention, who should take it, and when. The third excerpt will be about controlling hypertension for a healthy heart. We'll talk about the strategies and treatment options. The fourth excerpt will be about lowering your cholesterol, the guide to preventing heart disease. And finally, the last excerpt will be about targeting diabetes to protect your heart a comprehensive treatment plan. So here we are with our first excerpt about preventing heart disease and identifying and mitigating risk factors for a healthy future. Here's Martha Gulati. Martha, welcome to myheart.net. Thanks for having me. Well, although there has, there has been significant improvement in atherosclerotic cardiovascular outcome in the last two decades, Cardiovascular disease remains the leading cause of morbidity and mortality globally. In the U.S., it's the leading cause of death for people. Uh, much of this is actually attributable to suboptimal implementation of prevention strategies and uncontrolled atherosclerotic risk factors in many adults. So what we try to do first is um, uh, maybe we could try, you could try to define for us, Martha, what is primary prevention and how does it compare to primordial prevention as well as secondary prevention? Yeah, so the three types of prevention you just mentioned, primordial is where we're trying to create healthy behaviors to preserve health throughout the lifetime. And these things that often have to do with public health policies as much as behaviors. Things like, for example, reducing smoking, you know, smoking in society, or reducing physical inactivity, or environmental pollution, because that would benefit everyone and reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. Secondary prevention is, of course, once you have cardiovascular disease, how do we reduce your risk of future cardiac events? And primary prevention is where you may have risk factors already, but how do we prevent them from progressing towards cardiovascular disease? How do we treat, if we treat them, can we reduce your risk of developing cardiovascular disease? So it's important for people to just understand where we're at and what we're addressing for that particular individual. 
So obviously we want to identify patients with sufficient risk to merit treatment and with higher likelihood of benefit, you know, without having any harm for the treatment we want to do. So how do we identify, um, you know, patients that are more at risk that would really benefit from these treatment for primary prevention? Yeah, for pri so from our primary prevention guidelines, I think we talked about this last time we spoke, but we talked about the A, B, C, Ds, and the E's of prevention. And the first one is the A, which is assessing risk. And if we don't know somebody's risk, we can't start our, our treatment per se for primary prevention. So the way we do it in the United States is we, you know, the, the recommended risk equation that we use is the ASCVD risk equation or and ASCVD just stands for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So we're trying to assess your risk for heart disease or stroke. And once we know what that is, we can better make a plan for the individual for what is your individualized approach to preventing heart disease. And it has two components to it, of course. The first component is the tenure risk. So knowing in the short term, what is your risk for developing cardiovascular disease, which is important, but I think the lifetime risk is also important because when you're a young person, we'll talk about, we can't actually calculate your 10 year risk for somebody under the age of 40, for example, based on our risk calculator. And so we do need to talk about lifetime risk because for younger people, they don't fit into that risk equation. And the lifetime risk matters. They might be low risk right now, but if they continue these behaviors or if they continue to have risk factors present over time, their lifetime risk may be very high. And so it has some caveats to it, the ASCVD risk equation, which maybe you'll ask me about, but in general, it's a good starting point. It's not the ending point is the way that I tell people. And if you, you, it's an app that's available to anyone, your physician can walk you through it and calculate your risk. But that doesn't mean that as an individual, you can't look look or download this app. It's also on the internet and you can put in your numbers if you know your numbers. One number you'll know for sure is your age. Don't lie to it because it's not gonna tell anybody. You, you'll have to put in your race. You'll, you'll put in whether you have specific cardiac risk factors. So if you have hypertension or not, if you're being treated for that, if you have diabetes or not, if you're a smoker um, and, you know, that's the beginning. You'll put it in if you're male or female, but you do need to know your blood pressure and you do need to know your cholesterol and your total cholesterol and your HDL. And once you have those numbers, you can put them in. So if you don't have them, make sure you get them from your doctor and you can put it in, but it's actually very helpful for you and your healthcare team to put them in together and talk about what it means, because it may be harder for a patient to just look at that number, know, is that good? Is that bad? What do I do about it? It doesn't mean that just because you have a risk that you need medication. For many people, it might be that you just need certain strategies to lower your risk that don't even involve any medications at all. So I really suggest you do it with your healthcare team. That's a great idea. So I think it's a good place um, maybe to start the conversation, you know, having the patient uh, and the physician kind of start a conversation on primary prevention. I mean, obviously it's not perfect. I mean, it doesn't account for family history or certain race. So 
So I think the, the new guidelines really kind of emphasize the point that obviously this is just the beginning of the discussion, but uh, they mentioned about some risk enhancers. Uh, what are those and how do you apply those in clinical practice? Yeah, no, I think the risk enhancers are the things that help us for people that are sort of in the intermediate risk range or even for the lower risk, but to determine if they are truly low risk or truly intermediate risk and making decisions about whether they need or would benefit from medications or not. And, and that's where that sort of personalized or precision medicine comes in is to be asking for more because you're right, family history isn't in there. And of course we know family history matters. And additionally, things, other uh, things that are specific to women may not be in there. Race, for example, I will tell you, although you put in your race and the choices when you do this are whether you're white, whether you're black, or whether you're other. And so other, just to warn you, by default, other, you become white <laughs> in this risk calculator. So there's, there is certain races that are at risk. Certainly black people are at greater risk than white people, just in terms of cardiovascular disease, we know that. But South Asians are also at a greater risk and there's no South Asian risk calculator yet. And actually no other races really studied well enough that we can include them actually in this. So I think, you know, that'll probably be fine-tuned as we do more population studies and we have more data. But for now, the risk enhancers are, so the family history of cardiovascular disease, and that's heart disease or stroke. So if a male member in your family, first degree relative, so that means your mother, father, brother, sister, or children, those are the people that are removed by you by one degree. If a male in the family under the age of 55 has had early heart disease or stroke, or what we call premature atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, that's not in your favor. And if a female in your family, again, first degree relative, if they are under the age of 65 with one of the either heart, heart attack or stroke, that's not in your favor. So it starts with the family history. It also, your baseline cholesterol may matter too. That's noted as a risk enhancer. So particularly the LDL, if your LDL is above 160, you're in a different category of risk. And so sometimes primary care physicians won't recognize that, but hopefully by using the these risk enhancers, they'll start to get to know that. But if you know your LDL is above 160, you really need to be with a preventive cardiologist to talk about what are the implications of that. The other risk enhancer is something called the metabolic syndrome. And we talked about this before, but I, I think you you shared it nicely that I always say it's the person whose uh, tummy enters the room before the rest of the person. But it's sort of that that typical cluster of risk factors that come together. And these are things like the big, bigger waist circumference, higher triglycerides, lower HDL and elevated blood pressure and elevated glucose. And if you have three of those risk factors together, you probably have the metabolic syndrome. And all it does is points out to us that you're at greater risk of developing not just diabetes, but heart disease. Somebody who also has chronic kidney disease, that is a risk enhancer. And the more we are learning is that kidney disease 
is so closely linked to heart disease. And we really shouldn't minimize that that is also telling us something unique about that individual. There's other conditions, chronic inflammatory conditions, things like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, even HIV and AIDS and psoriasis. Those are all inflammation conditions that are, again, pointing that you have a greater degree of inflammation and perhaps a greater risk of heart disease. Sometimes it might be the inflammation, it might be the medications we use, but it really doesn't matter that we haven't identified which one. It just, if you know you have those conditions, those are things that put you in that higher risk category. And then there's some things like, like we already talked about just briefly, but race and ethnicity, being black, but being South Asian ancestry, all of that makes you at higher risk. And then uh, for something specific to women, uh, having either premature menopause can put you at a greater risk of developing heart disease. Um, then there's those things that occur during pregnancy that we call adverse pregnancy outcomes, things like um, any type of hypertension during pregnancy, but some people might know they've had preeclampsia or eclampsia, which is even worse. That puts you at a greater risk. Preterm delivery puts you at greater risk. Um, and gestational diabetes put you at a greater risk of heart disease. So those are things unique to women. Um, other things that we also talk about, elevated C-reactive protein, another marker of inflammation. So if you've had that done, it can help us. Elevated LP little a, that also is an increased risk and often is ties a family history and elevated LP little a. Sometimes that's the reason you check it, but that puts you at a greater risk. Elevated ApoB as well, which is closely linked to your LDL or non-HDL uh, values. And so sometimes your doctor might end up doing that. And, and even ankle brachial index, which I think is highly underused clinically, but if you have that and that's abnormal, that you're at a higher risk. So those are kind of the laundry list of risk enhancers. They should be in every primary care and cardiologist's office on their wall so that patients understand if you have one of those conditions, maybe that risk calculator that they just did on you doesn't fit for you perfectly. That the next step has to be done to try to determine if you're actually higher risk. Well, that's great. So, so there are some people at, at low risk, and we're going to say, you know, less than 5% um, risk of cardiovascular event with the next 10 years. And you have the people at, at very high risk. That means they're greater than 20%, you know, risk of having a cardiovascular event in the next 10 years. And then these risk enhancers really kind of help us in between. I mean, I guess the one that have borderline and or, or intermediate risk, this kind of five to 20% range, which is probably where most of the population, you know, are, and particularly for the, I guess, the 40 to 75, you know, age group. So I think that helps a lot. Now, you know, there, there are some other, other predictors of risk. I mean, obviously, this is always a good place to start. It's not perfect. Uh, some people have looked at, um, you know, other predictors, such as uh, looking at ultrasound of the carotid and have determined that if you had a little bit of intimal thickening, it, it increased your, your coronary risk. Somehow, if you had some plaque already, it kind of multiplies times four. If you had carotid stenosis, that's even worse. 
Um, and sometimes it can help you reclassify it. But yeah, I think there's a big uh, endorsement of the calcium score in the new guidelines. And, um, and this was based on MESA studies. So, so maybe if you can enlighten us a little bit, Martha, about this calcium score that has, now has been integrated uh, in, the, um, in the guidelines. Absolutely. I, you know, this is where I think for those borderline risk and intermediate risk patients, and particularly if they fall in that category, but also for the people even low risk with a lot of these risk enhancers, it can help us decide, are you reclassified to low risk because you don't have any evidence of plaque formation? Or are you somebody that already has plaque formation? And it helps our patients because I think for a lot of our patients, you know, there, I get it, a lot of pushback about taking medications if that's what's recommended for you. And sometimes you need a little more proof. And I think that's where coronary artery calcium has really helped us. It's helped with recalcification, but it's also helped a patient appreciate what's going on in their body. So what a coronary artery calcium score is, is it looks at calcified plaque in the arteries. It doesn't mean that if you have no plaque in by a coronary artery calcium score, that it's just, it hasn't been calcified. So there is a probability that you might have plaque, but it might be young plaque. But older plaque tells us that you, some of these risk factors and risk enhancers are accelerating the plaque formation in your arteries. And it's been there for a while because it's been there long enough to be calcified. And this is where this, you know, more and more data, and it, it, I agree that a lot of it isn't randomized control data, but what we're seeing from these po large populations of people that have underwent coronary artery calcium scores is that it helps us decide who's going to go on and develop cardiovascular disease and who is not, and helps us give a group of people a target of who we should be maybe more aggressive with. By reclassifying them as high risk, we can you know, be more aggressive about their cholesterol lowering strategies and whether we should be treating them. Because to me, once you have coronary artery calcium, to me, you have coronary artery disease. And at that point, we, you know, at least at, it would make them a high risk person and more, we should be more aggressive with them. Whereas somebody else who might have lots of these risk enhancers, but looks like either borderline or even low risk, and you do a coronary artery calcium score, you'd be much more comfortable with saying, okay, let's just work on lifestyle and let's not right now start medication. And I think that's where it's very helpful, especially with all these risk enhancers, because when you start using the risk enhancers as a, you know, as a screening after you do your ASCVD risk, you find most people have one or two of these um, or more actually, if they're unlucky enough. And so going through that can help us decide what should be the optimal therapy for these patients. Yeah, this um, MESA study to me, I, I found fascinating. I mean, I guess MESA stands for multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis. And, and a study has been going on now for years and um, the group at Johns Hopkins, very, very active with this. But yeah. they looked at 6,800 asymptomatic men and women from the age of 45 to 84 with 38% uh, white, 28% uh, African-American, 22% Hispanic, 
and 12%, you know, Asian, uh, mostly Chinese. And, and it's really amazing to me, if you kind of look at the patient group that they have, they, they had also the, the young patient population of 45 to 54. Um, of course, most of them, you know, three quarters of them had calcium score of zero and they had very, very low event. I mean, it was less than 1% over a period of 10 years while they had maybe a small group, but 5% of their patient had calcium score greater than 100. And these had a very high rate of event, almost as, as high as, as if you had coronary disease, they had like 17% event rate over a, period of, uh, of, over a period of 10 years. But also what's very interesting, Martha, is also at the end of the spectrum, if you look at the age of 75 to 84, there was 20% of their patient that had a calcium score of zero. It, which is amazing to me because, you know, I mean, you try to, I mean, you imagine that, yeah, of course, calcium and coronary disease goes up with age, but yet there are some patients that I think you could do some harm with statin or, or be too aggressive, you know, with aspirin. If they had no evidence of coronary artery disease, you're not going to help them, you know, with preventive, you know, measures that we have. It's not one pill for all and, and, if, and therefore a very, very nice way to maybe identify a little bit better who's going to benefit more, maybe, or most. Yeah, and I love the MESA risk calculator, to be honest, um, because with the MESA risk calculator, if they've had a coronary calcium score, it takes into account the same things that we talked about for the ASCVD risk score, but you put in what their coronary artery calcium score is, and then it either reclassifies them automatically to, you know, whether they're low risk or, or high risk. And I think the MESA data, in addition to numerous others, but MESA is from a population standpoint has been such a learning study for all of us and just sort of the natural history of what happens to an individual that they get to follow in MESA for numerous years. And that allows us to know really what, you know, what did these studies mean? Like, what, what do those findings mean? Because until MESA, we didn't know, like, so if plaque is there, you know, we didn't know, you know, it was always a snapshot in time, whereas MESA, we get to watch people over time and we see who has cardiac events and who doesn't. And I think that, you know, was very convincing. And I think when the MESA group came out and there was other people already saying this, but when MESA showed us what was happening to that population, it was very convincing. And I think for people that are trying to figure out, you know, am I at risk, which I know a lot of my patients always, that always is the question, you know, and seeing is believing is what I tell them. And that's why we'll sit down and look at the calcium score together. And, and show them where the plaque is if they found plaque or if we found no plaque that we, you know, can have a little celebration. It doesn't mean that not to keep up on the good lifestyle that they're already doing, but to continue it because it's obviously working. And maybe that's someone who doesn't need medication versus the somebody with plaque. And I think, you know, I, I don't know if you're you remember, but like, I feel like when I finished fellowship, a lot of people were doing coronary calcium scores and it was felt like it was a marketing tool and it got such a bad rap. And the sad part about coronary calcium is for many states still, you have to pay out of your pocket to get it done. Now it's getting more and more acceptance. And so I do think insurers will come around and start paying for it. But it really, I think it was so biased by what we didn't know at that time and now I think all of us want our patients to have a coronary calcium score because it helps us guide their therapy. And it's always sad to me when we can't get coverage for it. And 
than patients, you know, that it's, you know, everybody has a different level of income and, you know, so it's around usually around a hundred to $150 in most cities. And, and, but that money can, you know, not everyone can afford it, which is really unfortunate. So I hope one day soon we'll be able to allow that for the people in the groups that really need it. Well, to this point, uh, Martha, I think the, um, I'm wondering if it was the Cleveland Clinic that they did an experiment and they, uh, they had a calcium score for free and they were offering it to, to the public. And um, who benefited the most were the uh, women, minority, uh, the one with low socioeconomic, you know, um, strata, I mean, uh, layers of the population that probably would benefit the most. So, you know, to your point, I mean, I think the, uh, if you had a very low, inexpensive, you know, calcium score, you could really kind of improve and have a significant impact uh, for primary prevention in overall population everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, you know, of all the things we do in cardiology in terms of cost effectiveness, I would say there's now more and more data showing the cost effectiveness because uh, it isn't very expensive. Of many things, other studies we do in cardiology, you know, they're very expensive tests, actually. Mm -hmm. I have to say that we'll probably have a podcast on cardiac CT and discuss the calcium score, but it's a very easy test to do. I mean, it's very, very little radiation. It's about one millisievert. It takes about 15 minutes. Uh, and, um, you know, there's no contrast, there's no needle, you know, nothing. And it's very, very simple and, and um, available at, at multiple places. A couple of things I want to mention about this. Um, I think you, you, you mentioned already, uh, you know, this primary prevention and the secondary prevention, wherever you want to, you know, prevent, you know, you don't want to have a heart attack. You don't want someone to have bypass surgery. So there's got to be this preclinical disease, you know, these patients that we're missing, you know, between you know, being totally asymptomatic, but they're really progressing, you know, a lot. And, and Johns Hopkins just published an article in March in American in Circulation on very high calcium score and a calcium score greater than a thousand. And really demonstrated that the, um, you know, the, the cardiovascular event and mortality was very high in this group, was as high as someone that had actually coronary artery disease. And basically, if you have a very high calcium score, whether it's a thousand or whether you're in the 90, 90th percentile, it has a lot of implication. And we, as physicians, we need to be super aggressive and really convincing our patient maybe that they do need, you know, the aspirin and they do need you know, the statin, this is the time really to kind of intervene before they have an event, you know, before they have a heart attack. So very, very interesting. Another aspect, we do mention that there, there, there a lot of times that there is no, uh, you know, multi-center study uh, done with a calcium score, but actually there was one study in a, that I found in 2005, and it was the San Francisco heart, you know, study that randomized patient according to their calcium score to determine who would benefit from atorvastatin. And by that time, it was like 20 milligram. And it looks like the patients that had calcium score greater than 400 had a 6% benefit over a period of four years. So, but you have to dig down to 2005. It's amazing. There hasn't been, you know, any more multi-center study, um, you know, using the calcium score. And finally, there's the calcium score of zero. And, and what is the warranty of having a calcium score of zero? Uh, obviously, you're, you're not going to be 
you know, free for life. Uh, but you know, you have very low event as long as you stay at zero, but it, they do recommend to repeat it every four to five years because the patients that change and become greater than zero, um, they had, they develop, you know, more event as they go. So we shouldn't be complacent. You know, if we do get a calcium score and it's zero means that, you know, um, you don't have to follow your healthy lifestyle habit, like you mentioned. So I think it's very important to stick to what makes sense. So this concludes our first excerpt on preventing heart disease. Next time, we'll be talking about aspirin for primary prevention. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.